If you're new this morning, I want to say hi. My name is Tracy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my honor to serve this church. Uh, and this morning, we are starting uh, part five of one of my favorite series. They're all my favorite. Uh, we, we don't do series like in parts very often. This is one of the only ones we do like this. This is part five of the Bible says what? It's spelled like that on purpose. Uh, it's, the Bible says what? And if you're new with us or you've never heard one of these series before, let me explain. I believe with all of my heart in what uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, which is that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do I have a slide for that, Vaughn? Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't trying to embarrass you. I just really love this scripture. Okay, so, uh, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe this is true about the Bible. And so if I believe that that's true, um, then that means that every time I open this Bible, every time I'm reading it, that this is applicable. In the Bible. And all I can say is, I'm sorry, what? What did that just say? We've done a few of these. These are a few. Here's a sampling of some of the other, one, other messages we've covered. In Proverbs 26, it, it says, don't do this and also do this in the same context. You're like, what? What, what, am I, what, what am I supposed to do? 1 Corinthians 11 says, this is a good one, and because of the angels, Paul says, if you're reading your Bible and someone just throws out, and because of the angels, what because of the angels? Because of what? Where are the angels? I don't understand. Like that kind of thing. Psalm 137 was a tricky one. I remember struggling to write this message. It says, happy is he who dashes your infants against the rocks. If you're just flippantly reading through the Psalms and you see that and you think, that, that's fair. That's fair. You should be asking yourself, what? Leviticus, uh, more than one time. So I think I just read it in Exodus as well. More than one time in the books of the law, it says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. The scriptures don't just say this one time, friends. It says it many times, okay? This is a very important thing. And you're like, why? Why is this not just here? But why is it repeated so many times? You should be asking yourself. And my favorite one, this is the one, that, one of the only messages I ever send to people because they ask for it. Um, is this, it got awkward in the room, but we made it all the way through to the end, which is 1 Corinthians 14, women should be silent in the church. I know, right? We made it through. Don't worry, we made it through. We made it through. So that's sort of, like, just things that when we're reading the scriptures, we, we, that make us pause and say, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do with that instruction? Or it seems to contradict, or I don't really understand, and that's what this series is all about. It's, in, it's meant to intentionally pause on hard things that we read in the scriptures, unpack them, see how they might, according to this scripture, teach, rebuke, correct, or train us for righteousness so that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. And here's the thing. I don't want you to ever be afraid of your Bible. Some of you are nervous to get in there. You think it's, it's too hard to read or you think it's too boring and you're going to just fall asleep every time you try. Some of you are nervous that if you read your Bible and you have questions, that if you ask hard questions of the scriptures, it's not going to be able to stand up to your scrutiny. And your whole faith's going to crumble if you ask too many questions. And so you're kind of nervous to get into the Bible or, or to do more than just a, a surface reading. And I don't want any of those things to be true for you guys. 
I want you to know how to look at the broader context of Scripture when you're reading it. I want you to study the trees, but I don't want you to get lost in them. I want you to be confident that as you open the word every day that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and he's going to speak through that word and that that word, this word can be endlessly explored. I say this quite a bit. Sometimes people ask me, are you ever worried that you're not going to know what to speak on next? And I say, no, never. What I'm worried about when I'm putting together a sermon series is that there's just so much we could talk about. How on earth am I ever going to choose? And I want that to be your attitude when you come to the scriptures. This uh, Bible says what edition is called the Genesis edition. And here's why. Because one of our students came to me last fall uh, with this idea. And he had been reading in Genesis for himself. And it made him a few times say, what? (laughs) What did I just read? And, uh, and we have just finished Genesis in our Bible in a Year reading plan, so as many of you are doing that along with us. And so I knew that that was going to be true. So I thought this would be, let's do one that's just focused on Genesis. So hopefully this will answer some of the questions you might have already had as you were reading through Genesis or things you've thought about and wondered about um, in this first book of the Bible. So let's jump into this series, into our first passage And this passage here, according to the commentaries that I read, has been called one of the most difficult texts to interpret in Genesis for sure, and maybe even in the whole Bible. (laughs) Let's get started! Are you guys excited? I get excited about this. I like a challenge, but also I just, I am serious about thinking, I... I come at this humbly. I don't know everything, but I'm serious about wanting to learn and that knowing that the scriptures have something to teach me. I believe that 2 Timothy 3 passage uh, is true. And so here we go. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, you can find this in the Version Bible app under more and then events. You can follow along with it there and the other scriptures that we are uh, using this morning as well. So the context that we are looking at here, which is always important, is that, of course, we're very, very close to the beginning of the Bible here. We have, of course, the creation narrative. We have the fall, so Adam and Eve uh, sinning in the garden, being expelled from the garden. Uh, We have Cain and Abel, and, of course, uh, Cain famously kills his brother Abel. Um, And then we have a bit of a genealogy in Genesis 5, which takes us from Adam to Noah. And as you might know, Noah is famous for his big deal, which was, of course, the ark. So the flood and the ark are coming up just right after this passage that we are going to read. So Genesis 6 is sort of a transition passage between these two parts of scripture. It says this in uh, verse 1 of Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful And they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. Great passage of scripture. And um, if you are even remotely awake this morning, I hope that you said about three different times, I'm sorry, what? What was that? Unless you've already figured this passage out, in which case, that's great. Maybe we should switch spaces, places this morning. Because when I read this passage, like, if I'm paying attention, I have a lot of questions. This one raises more questions, honestly, than we're going to be able to answer with any certainty. That's true of a lot of passages in the Bible, and that's okay. But, like, I'm asking myself right away, who are the sons of God? Right off the top. Who are the sons of God? And then also then, therefore, who are the daughters of men? Where are the sons of men? What is that? Why are they calling them daughters of men? I have so many questions. And, of course, <laughs> the ones who the big press goes to, the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? What is happening? And who are these things and people or things or whatever? Why? And more broadly, and I, I will actually say to you more importantly, and we will come back to this later, does God have regrets? Does God regret making us? Is he sad that he created you and me? There's big questions in these eight verses. And those first questions, uh, those ones about sons of men and daughter, daughters of men and sons of God and the Nephilim, they stump a lot of scholars. Some just say, I just don't know. And some are very polarized in their opinions about what these things actually mean when you, uh, when you read interpretations and commentaries and things. And so they come into three different camps. And I thought, for the sake of treating the passage uh, the best that I can this morning, I'm going to tell you where the scholars, uh, the commentators land in their camps. And then we're going to try to figure out what it all means. Is that good? You guys ready? Whew, it's February. <laughs> we are going to do something awesome in February. Here we go. Okay. So if we're talking about the, the big deal actually in that beginning of this passage is who are the sons of God? Because that really helps us to uh, try to unpack the rest of it. Um, so who are the sons of God? There is three camps. There are three camps. The first would be that the sons of God are angels. Okay, so the angels have seen that the, the daughters of men are beautiful and are now coming and marrying them. That's a pretty normal experience, wouldn't you say? Uh, this one is the most obvious on the surface because the Hebrew word for sons of God um, is used in other places in the Old Testament to mean angels. So sometimes it's translated heavenly beings or that kind of thing. So this is actually not a bad translation if you think about it as angels. Even in ancient Jewish literature, we'll see this word being used um, for the, the, the sons, sons of God translated here. This, this word can mean angels, heavenly beings. But intermarriage between humans and angels has no other precedence in Scripture. It was very common in ancient mythologies for that kind of thing to be happening. You know, you probably, even in, like, this is older, but, like, you think about Greek mythology and uh, Roman mythology, you talk about um, gods um, marrying humans and then demigods. Like, this is like the Percy Jackson story, right? Like, we, we know sort of about this mythology, you learn about it in school. So that's not, like, uncommon for that to be in cultures, to have this idea that a god uh, could have a child with a human and then there's sort of this, like, like half-breed sort of thing. That's, that's true in culture. That's not true in scripture. Like, we don't see that anywhere else. And and so that's that doesn't really add up. And also... Just this little note, too, in Luke 20, Jesus says angels don't get married. He just makes this comment about angels not getting married. And so this idea that angels could be marrying humans doesn't have any other scriptural precedence. 
even if you think about like, so what, what the argument here is that these would not just be angels, but fallen angels, those who rebelled against God with Lucifer. And, and somehow in their unnatural state of fallenness, they have somehow gained the ability to have sex with women after the fall. That would be the concept here. And then if the Nephilim were their children, this gets so weird. What are we talking about? If the Nephilim, uh, which by the way, Read that passage just for yourself one more time. It doesn't say that the Nephilim were their children. The text doesn't say that. It actually says that these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men were happening at the same time as the Nephilim were on the earth. It doesn't explicitly say that, that was, they were the offspring. Um, so if, but if the Nephilim were their children, then um, we, why are they mentioned again? The Nephilim are mentioned one more time in Scripture in Numbers 13. The Israelite spies go out and they spy out the promised land, and they come back with a report, and the report is that there are Nephilim there. There are giants among them, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Like that, they're mentioned again there. But how would that even be possible if in like another chapter or two, everyone's going to be wiped out in the flood? Like where's the genetic line that is going to flow through all the way to Numbers 13? I have so many questions. This was fun, right? I also just wonder then, too, you know, when they, when they talk about the Nephilim later, like the spies, perhaps the word Nephilim just became a euphemism for super tall, scary-looking people. Like they're, like, they're like Nephilim in there. Like, do you know what I mean? Like that kind of, a, kind of a vibe. That's very possible that that's what they meant when they said that, not that they were actually the same as is in Genesis 6. So there's just so many things about this, them being angels, that doesn't make sense. Um, but, but certainly some people land in this camp. So we'll say that, that sons of God being angels, meaning angels, is probably the best translation of the word from the Hebrew, but it's the least likely to be true based on our normal experience and what we learn in other places in scripture. And also just all as another side note, if the angels are the villains in this passage, then why is God angry with men? Because that's who he is upset with. He's, this is what it says, he regretted making men. He doesn't, he doesn't judge the angels for this. So there's those kinds of things. Is that clear as mud for everybody now in camp one? Good. Son of God equals angels. Camp one. Some reasons that, that probably won't work, but certainly some people land there. Camp two. The sons of God equal the descendants of Seth, or in other words, those who are committed to God. Here's the concept here. Adam and Eve... Um, their, their first son, Cain, murdered his younger brother, Abel. And then they had another son named Seth. And Seth, we learn in, in um, chapter 5, is a direct descendant of Noah. So we're getting to the Noah story. That's kind of the point here. And so the concept is that those who are in Cain's line, Cain the murderer, right, those who are descendants of Cain would be the daughters of men. Those are the disobedient ones, the ones who have rebelled against God. And those who are in Seth's line are the ones who have obeyed God and those, those ones who are righteous and following. And so the issue that is being pointed out here in chapter 6 is that there is intermarrying between these two lines. So there's a righteous line and an unrighteous line and they've been intermarrying and now they're all unrighteous because of all of the mixing between those two things. The whole world has become so corrupt because while there's no distinction now between the righteous and the unrighteous, and so that's why God says in verse 5 that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time as a result of this. 
And that would be a little bit easier to understand perhaps than the angel's argument from camp one, but this isn't the normal way that we would use the word sons of God in scripture. In Hebrew, that's not what they would use the, the word sons of God for. Maybe there are some phrases that are similar in the Old Testament scriptures, um, like we would call, uh, call them children of God or something like that, but it's not the same word and it's not the same context. So, but there are some who think this is, this is about the intermarrying, this is about the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous and everybody just becoming unrighteous. So that's camp two, but camp three is like this, that the sons of God are actually the rulers of men, but who have become very corrupt. Like corrupt royalty is who these sons of God were. Because in ancient times, kings were very uh, closely associated with the gods. When somebody had that kind of power, uh, they were seen to be very closely associated with deity. And the idea here is that perhaps these men were setting up royal harems that were oppressive and perhaps even doing um, detestable things like, I read a lot about this actually in a lot of the commentaries that like the rite of the first night, which would be things like having sex with brides on their wedding night, uh, just as their right to do so. And this, this view lends itself to understanding why God was so disgusted by the wickedness of the human race. That evil had gotten to a point on the earth that it was institutionalized. It was coming um, from every level. It was coming from every person. And their leadership was so corrupt and disgusting and it was oppressing others. And God was just so grieved by all that he saw. It's also possible, of course, that these rulers uh, were controlled by demons. That they they may have been viewed on the earth as sort of like demigods, but they were only mortal. God points that out very clearly in verse 3, even if they felt like they were more than that. And if the Nephilim were their children, the fact that the children had giant statures doesn't mean that their fathers were angels necessarily. It could just be a genetic anomaly. No one claims Goliath, for example, who was a giant, had an angelic uh, father, in, other, in some way, because of how tall he was. So, so we, we look at these three camps just to give us some context of the fact that, yep, in this particular scripture, there's some questions. And there's no real clear answer to what these, um, what sons of God really means, what daughters of men really means, and who these Nephilim were. Sons of God might have been angels, or righteous men, who had intermarried and defied God, or perhaps evil and corrupt kings and rulers. I've even heard, I didn't read this anywhere, but if I would actually say, like sometimes I say Google it, I don't know if I would have <laughs> encouraged that here. There's some weird stuff out there about this particular passage. Uh, but I did hear one, I've heard it a couple times, that maybe the Nephilim were aliens. Like we don't know. We have our story. God's given us our story. Who's to say that there's not another story going on somewhere else? You know, I don't know. So there, there's all kinds of things that we don't understand about this. And while we're on the topic of more questions than answers, I, I will say again, again that the Nephilim get a lot of press. Um, but we have almost no information on them. What we've just read and what I told you about them being referenced in, uh, with the Israelite spies is all we know. We can't assume, therefore, from that lack of information that they are half man, half angel. We do know what scripture says, which is that they, are, they were considered the heroes of old and men of renown. 
and they existed at the same time um, as this intermarrying was happening. And perhaps that just helps us as a reader to mark the timeline of when all of this was happening. And then the, the narrator is trying to help us to understand when all of this was happening on the earth. And of course, in, in the years in between, a lot of it has become the stuff of legends, who these people were, and they were men of renown, and what kinds of things they were doing. And so because they were so famous, it helps us to mark the time of when this was happening. Nephilim actually really does mean, their name in Hebrew describes men of inordinate height, giants. Sometimes it's considered, they're also considered to be fallen ones, but typically just simply translated as really, really tall giant people. And so we kind of take all of these bits of information together, and some of you are like, I am literally lost. I'm ready for communion now. Let's just go on. I don't even know. I don't want you to be confused, but some of you are like, some of you are eating this for breakfast. So that's, that's fair. We all, we all study and learn differently. But I'm telling you these little bits of information, and certainly, by all means, please, go and study it for yourself. I'm barely scratching the surface of some of the stuff that's out there. I'm telling you all of this because when we read a passage that's difficult, it's okay to just dig into it and have more questions that lead us to more questions that lead us to more questions. <coughs> because we need to study the trees. We need to understand what the forest is comprised of. We need to be like, what is happening here? To the best of our understanding, how can I, how can I put together these few verses and, and why are they causing so much controversy? And I think it's great to ask the question. So that's, that's why I tell you these kinds of things. Some of you are like, this was the best sermon you've ever preached ever. I want to talk about the Nephilim every week. Some of you are like, what is the literal point? So that's next. So we study the trees a little bit. Okay, this is possibly who the sons of God were, which would make us understand who the daughters of men were. The Nephilim are like kind of their own little category. Okay, there's lots, there's lots of questions there. But now we pull out and we say, let's look at the forest. So here are the individual trees, here are some things, here are some questions, but let's pull back and study the forest. Because I want to give you this clarifying thought before you get too far into the weeds of all of the questions. I want you to always remember this, that the original readers or hearers, the, the original audience of that passage of scripture from Genesis 6 was well aware of who the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim were. And that's almost certainly why these groups were not described in Scripture. Because at the time, uh, it was a, a while after when this was written down, but not that long. And so we, we go, okay, the original readers, listeners, audience, understood what these groups meant, what these words meant. And that made sense to them. And they're not described to us, perhaps because they don't need to be, because that's not the point of the story. But they did make sense. It wasn't like God just... <laughs> drop these random things to be like, ha-ha, good luck with this one, you guys. Like, that's not the vibe here. But he's saying, but, but the original audience did understand, and there's, there's a story going on here in Scripture that we are not privy to. There's a lot that happened from page one to the last page in your Bible. That There's lots of story going on that we, we don't know has been lost to history or that, but this is what we have preserved. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? Um, we know our ability to, to fill in all the details is limited. There's no way we can do it. And the narrator has only given us as much as we need to see the point that he's trying to establish. So what is the point? 
think the point of this mysterious passage, whichever way you take it, and you can land in a camp if you want to, that'd be, that'd be fun. We could do a whole debate about it if you want. But this mysterious passage, um, the point is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil on the earth. God's boundaries for men have been so far overstepped and man is completely beyond self-help. So whether the Sethites have betrayed their calling or demonic powers themselves or through immortal kings or something have gained a stronghold, however we want to understand the beginning of this passage, what we know for sure is that God's boundaries have been so far overstepped and man is so far beyond self-help. Perhaps that's, we're supposed to uh, see this in context and step back and say that, see that Genesis 3 was the fall of humankind. In Genesis 4, we see the fall of the family. And here in Genesis 6, we have the fall of society. We have institutionalized oppression. That in every way, the world was so corrupt and so evil. The passage is not for practical application, necessarily. It's, it's presenting truth about the impact of sin on the world. It's giving us the reason why something so drastic, like the flood, which we're about to read about, which you'll, you, if you continue on here, you'll see that story unfolding. It gives us a context for why the flood was necessary, why God had to do something so drastic, because it is so drastic. For me, uh, as I read this scripture, the issue is less about the Nephilim and more about the title of today's message, which is, does God have regrets? Because if he does, that's a way more interesting conversation to have. Because I have to start asking questions then about his sovereignty. How could he regret something if he knows everything? <laughs> How does this even work? In verse 3, he says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal and their days will be 120 years. In a time when humans were living for hundreds and hundreds of years, this is the context we're in here at the early part of scripture. A uh, little Bible trivia, like fun facts. Anybody know who the oldest recorded person in the scriptures was? Ooh, there's so many Methuselahs in the room. You guys are super nerds. I love that. And how old was Methuselah when he died? That was a chorus of 969s. Congratulations, y'all. Okay? Let's do a Bible trivia next week together. Okay? Listen, I grew up doing Bible trivia, so that would be a jam for me. This is the time we're talking about where humans were living for hundreds and hundreds of years. Hundreds and hundreds of years. What would happen to you if you lived for 969 years? Would you not feel kind of immortal? Like you're 80 years old. Maybe some of you in the room are close to that age. And you're like thinking, you know, you're retired. You're thinking, you're thinking like, oh, this is the last season. This is like whatever. This would be like, I am young. I'm a teenager still at 80 years old if you're going to live for 900 years. You understand? So... In the time uh, uh, that, that this was all going on, it seems that humans had gotten this idea that they were immortal, that nothing they did mattered because there was no sense of like, of like I have a shortened season to live my life in. Uh, God says, no, you're not immortal. Just a little quick reminder, you're not immortal. 
And when he says 120 years, that could be a couple of things. It could be the time between when God says this and when the flood happens, which is about right. It also could mean the shortened lifespan that they were going to expect, which also happened. So both of those things are probably true uh, because humans started living uh, for less time after the flood as well. At any rate, the point here is that humans needed a reality check. They were not immortal. They were not the creator. And they were only evil all the time. Even though 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was preaching righteousness to them at this time. They were not created for the way that they were living and the way that they understood the world. Then Genesis uh, 6, 6 and 7 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. That's a hard thing to hear. Did he really regret his decision? Didn't he know that would happen? How could he not have known if he is all-knowing? And 1 Samuel 15, 29 literally says, in the ESV it says it like this, that God will not lie or have regret, for he is not human that he should have regret. What's the contradiction there? So no, God doesn't, um, the answer is, is, is actually pretty simple, but God does not have regret the same way that we do. This, this word doesn't mean it the same way we read it. It's, uh, the, using this phrase is like a literary device for us to help us understand that God has emotions. And when you put it in these, in these terms, and we can understand it from our limited human capacity, even we have big emotions, but not compared to our creator, right? So we, he has emotion, he has feeling, um, he cares about things. And so we start to get this idea about him by using a word like regret. It helps us to understand uh, how grieved he was at what he saw on the earth. The Hebrew word here, for regret means to be sorry, but more like to comfort oneself. It can be used when people are consoling themselves when they have lost a loved one. You don't regret having known that person. You are just living in the deep grief of having lost them. That's, that's what it, it's talking about here. This is the way it's describing how God felt when he looked at his creation. This term also, this word that's used for regret here in the Hebrew can also be an accounting term, which means that, like, that you audited the accounts. So the Lord audited the accounts of men and, and saw what, what human beings on the earth had become and he was deeply troubled. In the same way that there was writing on the wall, remember in the book of Daniel, there's this like, actually you know that phrase, writing on the wall, that's where that comes from. The Babylonian king, and there was this writing on the wall, and he couldn't read it, and Daniel comes and interprets it, and it says, says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Like sort of in that kind of an idea that God is looking at humanity and saying, I have audited the accounts of men, and your days are now going to be numbered. We can't go on. We can't go on from here. So it's a heavy message, and it's intended to be because there's going to be a serious judgment on the earth next. So here's what this passage teaches us. First of all, we can't fix the world on our own, no matter how much we try. 
We can't fix the world on our own. We need help. These folks had hundreds and hundreds of years per lifetime. And the world got worse and worse and worse. This is like chaos theory. Things do not tend towards order. They tend towards chaos. And the fall of man in Genesis 3, and when we rebelled against God and against his good order and his good and perfect plan, we started a descent into something we could not fix for ourselves. It didn't matter how many years you had to get it right. There's no way that it could be done. These folks helped to prove the point. We can also learn here that God's heart is grieved when he sees the brokenness of his good creation. He lovingly and intentionally created humanity in his own image. And it hurts him for us to not know him the way he intended us to know him. But instead, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Can you imagine what it would be like for him to have created in such a loving and beautiful and perfect way and then look out and see that this is what it had become? So we learn that we can't fix the world on our own. And we learn that we have a God who deeply cares about his creation and is broken by its brokenness. So what does a creator do when he knows his creation needs complete restoration and they are powerless to do anything about it on their own? No matter how many years they have on the earth, there's no way that they're going to be able to fix the mess that they've created. Here's what he does. He continues to write a story of redemption that actually began already a few chapters earlier in Genesis 3 and will be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He literally, from the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against him and did the one thing he told them not to do, from that moment he began writing a story. And this is part of that bigger narrative that takes us all the way to the cross in order to fix the thing that we could never have fixed on our own. So does God regret making you? No. He is grieved by the brokenness in the world. To the point where he went to elaborate lengths to write a story so that this would not have to be our ending. We're going to do something a little different this morning, and I want to invite our communion servers to come. And just go ahead uh, when you're ready. Uh, and we're So I know this is going to be maybe a little bit distracting, but uh, bear with me. I want you to pass out the emblems. You can stay in your seats. Normally, we have, if you're new here, we would normally come up and, and do this together. Uh, but I've asked them to do this while I continue to talk for a few minutes because I want you to hold on to the emblems. They're like nervous because there's no music playing. It's okay. Do you want me to sing? Do you want me to sing? Whoa, the one. Does that feel better? Yeah. It is, it is fun to speculate about the sons of God and the Nephilim and all of these kinds of things. I, I love the mystery of scripture. I love how it pushes me to learn more. And I love it when a story causes me to pause. Maybe for you, uh, as you're reading the scriptures, it makes you want to toss it all aside. Maybe this is a frustrating thing for you to look at a scripture and not totally understand it right away. I understand that. Maybe this story is too fantastical for you to be believed, but I want to draw you back to the point of this passage that connects the rebellion of the created 
against their creator to the flood narrative. And that's this, that we need help and we can't find it on our own. Matt, would you come with the team as well? The story that we're reading this morning is a part of a larger story that is leading us to what we truly needed, which is a savior. We needed someone who wouldn't be tainted by the world, someone who wouldn't be led astray by demons, someone who wouldn't be corrupted by power, somebody who wouldn't oppress the weak, even though he could have done all of those things because he was strong enough and smart enough and divine and could have done it, but he chose not to. That's what we needed, someone who was perfectly submitted to the will of the creator so that he could redeem what was lost and broken and fallen. We needed Jesus. And so he came as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. And in this position, as the creator and the firstborn over all creation, this gave him the unique position of being able to save that same creation from the consequences of its own choices. He came because the heart of God was so grieved and angry at the injustice and the evil in the world. And yet he so loved the world that he looked and didn't just toss it all aside, but he looked and said, I'm going to give my one and only son, to fix what they can't fix on their own. He gave us Jesus so that whoever believed in the work that Jesus came to do would receive eternal life and not die in judgment like those in the flood. That flood was incredibly tragic. But it was not without hope. God was still working out his intention to save us, to save us all through Noah and his family. We have this really strange and scary story at the beginning of Genesis 6. But of course, verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Jesus. The cost was really high for Jesus. It was a fully surrendered life and a fully surrendered death. And it was surrendered to death, not just any death, not a natural death, but crucifixion death on a cross and that cost was to pay for the rebellion that wasn't his but was ours and so that's why I wanted you to hold these emblems just for an extra couple minutes this morning in your hands is a symbol of the sacrifice that was being set up for you even as early as Genesis 3 Genesis 4 Genesis 6 that we just read We hold these emblems as a symbol of that sacrifice, the broken body of Jesus and the blood that was poured out to take away our sin. There's always a real humility when we come 
to the scriptures, certainly when we come to the Lord's Supper. The humility that is required of us because we have to first of all understand that we don't understand and know everything. But more than that, there's a humility that looks at a scripture like this and doesn't say, look how evil they were. Oh, look at even Adam and Eve. How could they have? There's a humility that's required that says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we come to this moment and are reminded that God didn't regret making us, but he was so grieved at the world that he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to bring us to a moment where we can just freely receive his grace and forgiveness by simply believing in him, humbling ourselves and receiving what he's done for us. And so we pause always as we come to this table because our instructions about the Lord's Supper tell us that we need to examine ourselves. We want to make sure that we are not coming to this table flippantly or letting familiarity breed contempt, as the message paraphrase says it. It says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. And so with hearts that are humble before him, aware of who we are and what he has done for us, let's receive forgiveness so that we can come to these emblems in, in a worthy manner, as it says here, in a way that's made right before God. And we receive his forgiveness and are made right before God because of him. So let's take a moment and confess our sin to him, receive forgiveness, and allow our hearts to be made right again. Lord, you said that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't want to come to this table unrighteously, but we want to come with the righteousness we receive from the sacrifice of Jesus, just by faith. So we confess to you that we have rebelled against you. We have done it our own way that we have made choices that grieve your heart, that we have lived in such a way that has walked against the way that you've created us to live. And we recognize it humbly and ask for forgiveness. And thank you as we receive it with faith and in grace this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, 
on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's consider the broken body of Jesus who has died on the cross for us to pay the penalty for the thing that we could not fix on our own. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together and remember the spilled blood of Jesus, which was poured out to take away our sin, not his. Let's drink the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Scripture says that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's how important this moment is. That until he comes again and finishes the work and, and, uh, and makes everything new, that we will continue to come to this moment with gratitude that we don't live under the condemnation of judgment, but we have received right standing with God when we receive Jesus, forgiveness from him and from what he's done for us. Let's just take a moment and worship him as the team leads. Let's stand together. I want you to consider, as weird as it is, that we started with the sons of God and the Nephilim, <laughs> and we're landing here together on the cross, understanding that scripture, even there, even in some of the stories that make us pause, have drawn us all the way to Jesus to remind us how much we needed him. And let's let our hearts rejoice in the fact that we can come to this table, proclaim his death until he comes. Let's just take a few moments in worship.